Welcome to Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center. And as usual, I'm joined by my fellow freedom fighter, co-founder and senior counsel, David Yurashami. Now, as I noted during our July 1 show, our, the last podcast that we did, um, that we would not be doing a show on July 8th, and we didn't, as I was up north in Grand Rapids, Michigan, selecting a jury for a pro-life trial currently scheduled for July 21st. Uh, we may have some time later in this show to uh, discuss this case, that being the pro-life case. But I want to start by discussing briefly, but yet again, this utterly false, divisive, and dangerous narrative of the left that the January 6th protest at the U.S. Capitol was somehow an insurrection, which has now morphed into an insurrection by white supremacists, because for the left, everything has to be about race, and it all has to be as, the, as divisive as they can make it. But of course, we know the protesters, they were not armed. And the only person who was shot was Ashley Babbitt, an unarmed white woman, a 35-year-old Air Force veteran, as a matter of fact, who was shot dead by a Capitol Police officer. Of course, this was an act of racism, right? Because every time an officer shooting is involved, it's racism. At least that's what the left keeps telling us. So who was the shooter? Do we know yet? You know, what was his or her race? Maybe it was racism. You know, racism doesn't go just uh, one way. But funny how we know absolutely nothing or very little about this police shooting. Um, I jumped online, took a quick look, and CNN reported that, uh, that Ashley Babbitt was shot by a police lieutenant, apparently. But that quote, and here's the CNN report, the lieutenant has been cleared of criminal wrongdoing, end quote. Really? You know, when was his trial? Did we miss that, David? I didn't see his trial anywhere. Um, what's going on here? Apparently, he didn't have one. Why not? Don't white women lives matter too? Here's an unarmed woman who at, at best was a, was a trespasser and she gets shot and killed and we really don't know anything about it and they sweep it under the rug. I, I certainly hope that the, uh, the Babbitt family has, uh, has hired some lawyers um, to, go, uh, to go after this one. But, you know, we don't even know anything about, about this. But, you know, as, my, uh, as David keeps reminding us here during these podcasts, um, and it's true, we are currently in a non-kinetic civil war. And again, he's, he's absolutely right about that. But the left wants to keep pushing this division. You know, and they might just push enough to force this into a kinetic civil war, God forbid. But as I was like, say, you know, bear in mind, you know, the father of division and the father of lies is Satan. To me, I, there's no other explanation. The more I try to rationalize or, or try to rationalize what the left is doing with the transgender stuff, with what they're trying to do to our, our nation, it's, it's demonic. I mean, I can't explain it any other way. You know, we have to resist this dangerous agenda of the left as, as hard as we can. They're liars, and they have the national media as their echo chamber for their lies. Our media on the left, uh, quite frankly, they're worse than Pravda, which is, you know, the official news source of, of Russian communists. You know, it's absolutely pure propaganda, and it's propaganda that is designed to divide our nation. We can't have it. So, David, welcome. I understand that uh, NPR has been doing some reporting on this so-called insurrection of January 6th. It has. It has an interesting site where it has a database of the, all of the indictments, and then they have some narrative. What's interesting about their narrative is the numbers of, of people incited by Trump, law enforcement, 
people and so forth are much higher than when you actually look at their database. I'll talk about that in a minute. But there's a couple interesting points. In addition to the fact that we haven't had any kind of transparency with regard to Ashley Babbitt's killing, right? The death of Ashley Babbitt, we haven't seen any security video, no body cam. And trust me, we know there's security video out there because the Department of Justice and the FBI are doing all kinds of facial wreck to identify people who were there to charge them with everything from violence to simple trespassing or disorderly conduct. Where is, where, where's that investigation? As you point out, they tell us that the lieutenant who killed her has been cleared of all wrongdoing. How? You, you, a police officer wounds or kills an African-American or a Latino or any person of color. And we have a national event and a demand for full transparency and video cam, et cetera, et cetera. And nowadays police, the law enforcement puts that all out there because they know it's better to put it out there than to hide it. But apparently not when it comes to January 6th and not when it comes to a white woman, a former army veteran. The other aspect of this is that we know that one police officer, one, died. Didn't die. He died later that day, but he died of natural causes, apparently two strokes. Had nothing to do with any injury or his involvement, notwithstanding the medical examiner throwing in oberdedicta, just kind of language that says, well, this was a rising out of, but in his actual medical scientific causation report, the coroner's report, he can't link it to anything that occurred. And strokes happen to people. And the fact that it happened the day of the riot doesn't make it connected um, unless he can find some connection, which he could not. Right. And you know, you know, if there was any way to make a connection, they would. And there'd right. be a charge of homicide, whether it be, you know, second degree or some, some other version lesser than, you know, premeditated murder. Some, right. some measure of homicide, you know there would be a charge for that, but there isn't. Why? Because it didn't happen. Right. And, and I hope to get to the congressional committee that's um, uh, being set up to investigate the insurrection, or even as uh, our dear friend Annie McCarthy calls it, the January 6th riot, which I still think is an improper characterization. I would characterize it as a demonstration that got out of hand, certainly. Um, but um, even if you call it a riot, the bottom line is this, the New York Times, law enforcement officials and others kept identifying um, this police officer as having been killed in the insurrection by the rioters. We were then told during the Trump impeachment by the impeachment officers the prosecutors, the senators who are prosecuting this case, that this police officer was killed by the rioters who were incited by Trump. None of that's been corrected for the record by these people. President Biden just recently talked about the death of a police officer as a result of the January 6th riots. The president himself, well after the time that we knew that the man died, 
by natural causes. It just goes to show that, that this non-kinetic civil war, anyone who argues that we should engage in politics as usual is simply naive and wet behind the ears. They just aren't opening their eyes. Now let's just drill down on some facts so that our listeners can understand. According to the NPR database, and I've done some background checking to see how accurate it is, and it's fairly accurate, this so-called insurrection. Of all the people, there were tens of thousands of people at the demonstration where Trump spoke, and thousands went down to the Capitol. Only 545 people have been charged with any crime. The vast majority have been charged with the, the standard trespass, going on government property, um, obstructing a government process because they had to shut down Congress while there was this thing going on. Some of them um, with um, not obeying police orders, but of the 545, 106 were charged with anything from resisting arrest to disorderly conduct to violence. Of the 106, now remember these are only charges this isn't even the number of people who are going to actually be convicted based upon evidence. Only 86 out of all those people were charged with any violence, and that includes people who were just being pushed up against the barriers. 42, only 42 were charged with conspiracy. This was an insurrection. 42 people, of all the people they've gone through, and they've scoured the social media and emails, only 42 people. Now let's go a little bit further. Of all of these 545 people charged, remember the talk about the fact that this extremism, this white supremacy is a danger in our military? Remember that talk? You, you guys, Rob, you know, a Marine, former combat Marine officer, you guys are dangerous because you were absolutely seminal participants in this insurrection. Well, guess what? Only 15 individuals can be linked in the actual database. NPR's narrative talks about, about 74, but only 15, when you click on their database, have been linked to the military or law enforcement. And that's not even current members, that includes former military or law enforcement, 15. So even NPR's narrative has to admit that, gee, I guess the military wasn't, and law enforcement people weren't really so involved. Yeah, and, and what's the percentage of uh, military and law enforcement people who are Trump supporters, who just, out of the percentage of people who would be right. there to begin right. with, is, right. is astronomical because we understand the importance of law and order, unlike the left, who's all about anarchy. I mean, it's yeah. and even to call this thing a riot, right? When you look at right. what the Black Lives Matter and George Floyd protests all summer long, burning down cities, attacking federal buildings, attacking police station, police stations. I mean, that creating was no go zones, creating no go zones. No. That, that's that's closer to an insurrection than anything that happened here. And, and I refuse to call this thing a riot. It was a protest which became disorderly at times, no question right. about it. Right. 
and and the fact is is we know that that they they knew this was going to be a big event they even had intelligence on the few of the rabble rousers and there were guys there who had planned on coming and causing trouble no question and that occurs in many demonstrations on both sides of political ideologies but the fact is they didn't properly guard against the violence and so you had a demonstration that got disorderly and in some cases violent but it was trivial relative to the George Floyd protest. Now, we're told that the insurrection is driven by Trump loyalists who are white supremacist and belong to extremist organizations, right? According to NPR's database, and listen to their definition, tied to extremist or fringe groups. <laughs> I mean, I dare say that I belong to a fringe group, Orthodox Jews, Hasidic, conservative. You certainly do, gun-owning, gun-toting, former Marine, devout Catholic. I mean, you're, you're a nutcase, right? So <laughs> ties to the extremist or fringe groups. How many? How many do you think, Rob? Oh, well, based on the reporting, they had to have been, uh, you said there was 500 and something, so it must have been, you know, 545, so at least 500, right? Because this whole thing's supposed to have been a white supremacist attack. Is it you not know, 500, maybe, maybe 400? Maybe 300, maybe 20%, yeah. 100, maybe? Yeah. Guess what? 14. Yeah. 14, and the definition, extremist group or fringe groups. I mean, they must have had to stretch that definition to get even 14. Yeah. And remember, this is NPR, National Public Radio. You want to talk about, I mean, they're the, they are the state-run Pravda. The for tip the of left. the spear, right? The tip yeah, of the so spear. you got to understand, this is the worst case scenario that they could possibly, uh, you know, scrape up. 14, really, 14 yeah. white supremacists are causing a white supremacist insurrection, unarmed, by the way, right. at the, uh, at the Capitol. Right. Even, even our, our dear friend, Andy McCarthy, in his latest article, on this uh, committee, congressional committee, and, and his argument being that um, uh, the Republicans ought to step up and get involved in this committee so that the Democrats who've appointed eight, and Pelosi, of course, appointed Liz Cheney as one of her, as one of her eight, the Republicans should appoint five, right? That's going to be a real um, uh, apolitical investigation yeah. into this um, riot slash insurrection. But guess how many have presented any kind of argument that they were incited by Trump? Of course, even Andy says that Trump, for his, his rabble rousing, foreseeably led to the violence. That was his language, foreseeably, today in his article. I disagree. I've read Trump's speech word for word. I've listened to it on the audio. Um, there is no way in the world that that speech led anyone, because anyone who even claimed it did, they were an independent agent. They made a choice. They decided. He told them legally go down and demonstrate legally, First Amendment rights. But how many do you suppose, Rob, have claimed that Trump they were simply following Trump's directions. 
it had to be all 540 something. It had to be. I mean, that's what I, we keep hearing. I, I mean, come on, they, the left doesn't lie, right? They don't right. lie about this stuff as serious as this. They created, we're having a commission, right? Did you just say that? They're, they're creating this commission because this is so, so important. And they tried to impeach Trump over this, right? So it had to be at least 500. Come on, David, how many? So to, our, to our video folks, I'm holding up my fingers to the audio. Uh, guess what? It was two. Now again, two hundred. No, I'm sorry. Two. <laughs> two. One, two. One, two. Not three. Yeah. Two. So there must be a conspiracy then. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and again, in NPR's narrative, they talk about I think you know a dozen or so. But when you actually go to the database, I can't figure out where that name number comes from. Can you go to the database and you click on their link? They have a link to this incited by Trump. Two people show up and they know that they were claiming that because their attorneys have filed briefs that, you know, we, we were just following. And one of them was one of the proud boys whose comment was, um, you know, we were there and we understood that we were doing what Trump wanted us to do. I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> I, again, silliness. Yeah, this, anyone, uh, anyone who wants to pin this on what Trump said, to me, is an absolute enemy of the First Amendment. Right. They are a domestic enemy. If you, if you want to pin this on and you want to punish somebody because of what Trump said, his speech, which is fully protected by the First Amendment, doesn't fit anywhere close to any of the exceptions, whether it be you know, incitement or, you know, fighting words or any other of those well-known exceptions doesn't even come close to fitting those. If you're going to punish anyone based on that, on that speech or particularly Trump, you are an enemy of the first amendment. I don't know how else to, to, uh, to describe it. Right. So I, we just cover now, um, Andy McCarthy's now Andy McCarthy's a bright guy and we love him dearly. He's on our advisory board. He was, the prosecutor of the blind shake, the first bombing of the World Trade Center. He's been involved in terrorist prosecutions, mafia prosecutions. He was a superb assistant um, U.S. attorney out of the Southern District of New York, one of the most important, powerful districts of, of, um, of the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, and he writes um, for National Review, and he com has commentary published everywhere, and he's on Fox News all the time. Uh, a really bright guy, and he certainly did a, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporting on the whole Russiagate thing. Really did a superb job, wrote a book uh, worth buying. Um, uh, Rob, do you remember the title? Collusion or something along those lines. But you can look it up. Yeah, it's called Collusion. I got it. Yeah. Put me right. on a spot. I read it. It was fabulous. Yeah, yeah. it really is. And so, but um, unfortunately, Andy still is of the view that it's, it's kind of politics as usual in today's article. And I respectfully disagree. Um, he calls it a riot. And I don't see this as a riot. There just wasn't enough riotous behavior to be a riot. Um, number two, his, his argument is that Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader of the House for the Republicans, um, needs to quit diddle-daddling around and appoint the Republicans. 
um, that are going to be on this committee, five Republicans versus eight appointees by Pelosi, and Pelosi's appointed seven, plus Liz Cheney, who for all um, purposes of the January 6th situation is as good as any Democrat. And his point is, you know, you have to walk away from Trump. You have to investigate this objectively and properly. This is a proper congressional oversight committee to see if any legislation should be necessary to prevent something like this from happening again. Say what? What kind of laws are you going to pass? Laws that attempt to curtail free speech? What, what exactly are you, do you have in mind with that regard? And secondly, what's going to happen? The, the Democrat appointees to a person are going to simply line up people to testify and put them on TV to talk about the insurrection and how deadly this was. They'll have their experts from law schools and political science departments, and maybe even a few psychologists. They're gonna talk about how dreadful this was, and it almost brought the Republic to its knees. That's what they're going to line up. And the Republicans are either going to vote nay, but be outvoted when the report comes out, or as typically is done, they're going to issue the minority report, which gets ignored. The media, the only one who's going to cover the minority report is going to be Fox News. And Fox News is just preaching to the choir every night anyway. So you've got all the media on board. You've got an absolute joke of a committee examining things. And then later on in Andy's article, he says, you know, what they really ought to be looking at in addition to the specifics and how Trump's speech might have incited this thing, et cetera, et cetera. Look into um, how it is that um, we were told that the police officer was the death was a result of this. Uh, what happened to Babbitt? Uh, we should look into um, you know how it is that the George Floyd protest were you know charges are being dropped and dismissed by by uh, blue states, right? The democratic states are dismissing charges against all the George Floyd people. They're not being charged, they're not being put in prison. Whereas people who simply put a foot on the Capitol property are being charged with trespass and they're trying to get them to go to jail. So he actually has the view that all of this is possible. And his argument being, if the Republicans get in there and, and you know, do the political battle over this report, we have a chance, meaning the Republicans, of taking back the House in 2022. And again, if you understand that we're in a non-kinetic civil war, that's a joke. Even if the Democrats don't kill the filibuster and don't pass their um, voting quote-unquote rights act, which is going to simply destroy any fair elections going forward. They're going to sit around and wait. And if they lose the House, um, then uh, they will uh, do whatever they have to do to kill the filibuster and try to get enough Republicans to, to come on board and pass that act. But I don't even think they're going to wait that long. But they could. Or they could wait and see how many seats they lose. But I'm willing to bet right now, forget 2022, forget the midterm, 2024 is going to see a Democratic Congress, both houses, 
and a democratic president because the elections have been rigged. And we're going to talk about attorneys who say that, but Rob and I come at it from a different perspective. We don't come at it from the perspective that we can um, claim specifics about vote rigging or, or changing ballots or throwing ballots out and all the stuff that, that the Trump lawyers did. What we're saying, at least what I'm saying, I don't want to speak for Rob, is that beginning in the Obama administration, when they saw the writing on the wall and Trump was going to be elected, they began a process of a coup d'etat of the shadow government of the intelligence services, creating the Russiagate, creating the narrative, creating that Trump was a traitor and um, pushing that narrative through the elections, past the elections, through incitement, um, uh, excuse me, through impeachment, two impeachments, um, and with the media on board and all of the universities on board and all the cultural elites on board, this was a rigged game. And then when you had COVID and all the aggregating of mail-in and write-in, you know, all these ballots that were coming in from everywhere, um, there was only one result that was possible. And that was that the Democrats were going to take control of the final lever of power, pure political power. They've got education, they've got media, they've got entertainment. Now they, they have the judicial branch, except for the Supreme Court, but even the Supreme Court, one of these podcasts, uh, we're gonna have a top, talk about the Supreme Court. Um, but let's just put the Supreme Court aside, certainly all the other courts you know, in the main, even as good a job as President Trump did in appointing judges, um, the Democrats still control ideologically the bench. We see it every day. We're up against it every day. Now they have pure political power. They know how to win elections and they're not going to give it up. And I will, I'm going to say that COVID was fortuitous for them in the sense that they were able to institute statewide all of these measures about drop-off ballots, harvesting ballots, you know, mail-in ballot, all this stuff, which made it possible for them to get votes from people who didn't have enough interest to, to go to the actual polls during regular years and vote themselves. When you have that, you control all of the levers of power in a free society. And so I don't think that anyone who thinks that um, we have politics as usual and the Republicans should engage. I don't care whether Republicans engage. I think they're as feckless as they've always been. Um, the only one who ever really did anything um, was President Trump and his Republicans didn't much help him while he was president. And one can have all sorts of criticism of legitimate criticism of President Trump. I certainly do um, as a person, uh, you know, as a leader, et cetera. But on the other hand, he did more than any other president in my lifetime to push back on the progressive movement. Hey, oh, by the way, um, it, has anybody gone out to the gas pumps lately and seen what's happening there? Mentioning uh, talking about Donald Trump and the impact that he had and particularly what he did with our 
with energy. I know here in Michigan, it was like $3.50 a gallon. It's almost twice as much as it was um, when uh, shortly after Trump left, uh, left office. So these are just additional taxes that are being imposed upon us because of these absurd rules and regulations of the, uh, of the left. But yeah, we have inflation across the board as a result as well. Yeah, and, and increased cost of everything when you increase the fuel cost. But you know, you mentioned about uh, you know the the uh, how COVID nineteen just sort of lent itself to um, to all these changes, particularly in in our voting, right? And then that always it always leads me a little bit suspicious uh, again about all right. The timing of this is is pretty interesting, particularly when you, in light of the fact that you know President Trump of all the presidents and leaders that we've had, and certainly in comparison to the Biden administration was standing up to China and what China was trying to do and, and their quest for world dominion. Um, and, uh, and China didn't like it, <laughs> in fact, and they love the Biden uh, administration, no doubt, because they're in his hip pockets. Um, and so, you know, we've discussed many, many times about the origins of, uh, of COVID-19. And so I just want to shift gears now. It's kind of the segue into this. You know, what is the status of Biden's demand for an intelligence report on the origins of COVID-19? Are we supposed to be within 90 days? And I, I believe according to a report from the Wall Street Journal, he was supposed to be providing a 45-day interim report in mid-July. Well, I haven't seen that, that report. I don't know if you have, David. But what we are seeing is more propaganda from scientists whose professional existence depends largely upon lab research of dangerous viruses. And they continue to come out with yet another report on how this is almost certainly I don't know if the term is zoonotic, but a, a natural jump from animals to humans. Yet uh, the report is riddled with inconsistencies. I know, Dave, you've been follow, uh, following this a bit. Can you uh, follow up with us on this? Yeah, in, in July, um, earlier in this month, um, was the most recent uh, statement. It's been given a, a fair amount of press um, by you know, the who's who in the virology business, right? Uh, a couple of Nobel uh, prize winners, in fact. Um, and what they do is they, they go through the evidence that they assert um, fairly well establishes that it was a zoonotic meaning, a jump from animal to man um, naturally, and it was not a leak out of the Wuhan lab. Now, much of what they argue is like we saw from the WHO so-called investigation. Um, and um, at some point it might be worth talking about it in specifics, but I, I don't want to get into the weeds, but it, in the main, what they do is they look at, you know, how it was first identified in China and where the, the, the major reports of, of disease and death occurred in Wuhan in China, was it near the wet market or was it near the lab, which was on the other side of the river? Uh, well, they identify it in the wet market area. Well, what they don't tell us is uh, where do the people who work in the lab live? Where do they go? Do they visit the wet market? Um, that would be interesting. Uh, they, they talk about previous lab leaks, conceding that there have been, but saying, gee, other than one, those lab leaks haven't caused pandemics. <laughs> therefore, therefore, the likelihood this one 
I mean, how does that make sense? It's a non sequitur. Yeah, and, and how many have we had? Um, then they, they go through the um, fact that, you know, the Wuhan lab wasn't dealing with this particular COVID virus. Uh, they would have had uh, typically do experiments on mice, but COVID doesn't infect mice so well. And this reason and that reason, but all of that evidence is based upon what the Chinese government and the Wuhan lab tell them that release. And they just assume because there's no evidence that anyone at the Wuhan lab had COVID antibodies or got sick from COVID or that they didn't, weren't experimenting on this particular COVID. They just assume it's true. Now imagine that the Chinese Communist Party and because these PhDs work closely with people in China, in Wuhan at this major lab. But again, what they also don't do, well, let me just, another one of their um, justifications for it not coming from the lab is that the various protein spikes and, 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 and physical structure and, and molecular structure of this thing doesn't look like anything we've seen in the published literature out of China. Well, gee, if it was gain of function being driven, let's say by the military of China, which wanted to run secret experiments, do you think they'd be publishing peer review articles on that kind of work? And, you know, I accept the fact that the Wuhan lab at the civil side is on the cutting edge, the leading edge of research of virology. And if it was being run by a free and open society government, it might be worth to tip your hat to them and respect them. But this is the most, one of the most advanced virology labs in the world. And China is one of the leading nations to develop biological weapons. Now, do you suppose that the Wuhan lab isn't doing military work? And we've been told by others connected to whistleblowers that it does do military work. So is it so conspiratorial? Is it so far-fetched to believe that the Wuhan lab has a military component that is absolutely secret and is not being exposed to these naive scientists who say, whatever the Chinese Communist Party tells us, we believe. I mean, it's absurd. And then they have a bunch of evidence about why it, it's most likely from the animal and they, it's biological and it's virological, et cetera. But guess what? What they can't tell us and what they don't know is how did it leap from wherever it started? They don't even know where it started, but likely a bat because bats tend to have all kinds of COVID viruses. How did it go to a human? We don't know. And their explanation is, well, gee, we don't know how polio jumped either. We don't know how other viruses that we know came from the natural world. We haven't identified those either. But the absence of the earlier information about where earlier diseases have come from doesn't excuse the fact that 
they don't have an explanation how it went from bat to human. And so it's no more likely in that scenario, given what we know about the Communist Chinese Party and its work on biological warfare and its work at the Wuhan most sophisticated um, lab in China, um, it is no less likely that this thing emanated from the Wuhan lab, either because of military work that escaped and someone walked over to the wet market where they live and bought what they needed to buy and it spread because we do know it's incredibly infectious and that's all it would take. And that would explain all the epidemiological data where they say, no, this is all, all the deaths and the disease occurs around the wet market. Well, of course it does. Where do you think the, the, the lab workers go at the end of the day? So this study was just more propaganda. And when you keep in mind that these scientists have a vested interest that it came from natural causes and not from a laboratory, any laboratory, their arguments simply erode into a confirmation bias where they're simply confirming a bias that they already had and any scientist worth his salt can do it. Rob and I and our opponents in court hire experts. And if we pay the expert, we can get the expert to say whatever we want them to say on either side, as long as it's reasonable. It always happens. I don't know of a case, do you Rob, where we've had experts or any other lawyers had experts where you all have, you have all the experts on both sides agreeing that it was the plaintiff's fault or it was the defendant's fault or it was nobody's fault. You have experts on either side. How does that happen? Because experts can be bought because they're not utilizing science. Science, as we've said many times, is just measuring things. Science has become more than measurement. Science has become scientific consensus in square quotes. In other words, scientists utilize conjecture and even speculation, but they do it in the guise of an expert and you can't challenge the expert. And if you get enough of these experts, if you challenge them, you're a conspiratorialist and an extremist and a nutcase. And let me just clarify, we don't ever buy testimony in a court, but you certainly have experts that have competing opinions and competing biases. Just because they might be an expert doesn't mean that what they actually say is, uh, is, is always correct, because it's just not. Just you know, being claimed an expert. Uh, and again, these, certainly these uh, virologists have an incredible bias uh, in, in favor of it not leaking from these uh, dangerous labs. They don't, want, they don't want more restrictions being imposed upon their research or their research being scrutinized um, and, 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 you know, in, in ways that they feel like are going to intrude upon, you know, what, what they want to do. But that I means so we've gone over this evidence. I don't want to beat it up again, but there's so much evidence pointing to the fact that this was more likely than not a bioweapon with all the gain of function and everything else. And here's one other point. Note that the scientists, right, they claim that this most certainly came from the China wet markets in Wuhan, yet China has allowed these wet markets to reopen, right? So how is that not an international scandal? Why, scandal? Why, aren't they, why aren't they demanding then that these wet markets, if apparently they are so dangerous that you can have these deadly, you know, these deadly viruses 
just jump from you know these the bats or whatever at these wet markets over to humans. Why aren't they shut down right away? They're not. They're absolutely not. So you have silence on on the left uh, towards these wet markets, which involve animal cruelty and everything else, right? These uh, you always hear the left of the animal lovers, but apparently wet markets it doesn't matter. To silence, kind of segueing a little bit to another matter on the Cuban protests, right? They've they've been there's been silence on on that part of it, but. You know, this, what's this boiled down to? The left loves communism. They love communists. That's, they are communists. They want us to be communists, but we won't. This isn't Cuba. This isn't China. We're Americans. We love freedom. We know what it means and we'll fight for it. But it's just, uh, it's remarkable. These, um, the, the blinders they want to, they want to put on, they don't want to get to the bottom. They don't want to get to the bottom of this. Um, so moving to the, uh, moving to the legal. Yeah, let me, uh, before we jump to the legal, let me, I want to come back just two points quickly. You really have to pause because as Rob points out, while the Chinese initially shut down the wet markets during the height of the pandemic, they've reopened them. And you know what they tell us? They tell us that they're now regulated. Well, the Chinese Communist Party regulates every aspect of their population's lives. And does one really think that the regulations for safety and health in China are worth a, a dime? I mean, let's, let's look at China. China has the greatest pollutions. If you, if you live in any urban environment in China, you're dying every day from air pollution because of the, the, the lack of any kind of controls in China. Most of carbon poisoning in the, in the atmosphere is coming from China. The fact is, is that manufacturing from China has been found by the FDA and by consumer safety um, agencies to be extremely dangerous and poorly regulated. Time and time again, and we're supposed to rely upon a communist Chinese party. I mean, we don't really trust our own government for safety and health, right? Um, look at the, the collapse, the tragic collapse of the condominium in, in Miami. We're already looking at the interplay with the building department and the engineers and the, and the condominium association board. Everyone knows that something terrible went wrong there. And with all the building regulations and ordinances and inspections, government didn't prevent that. And government doesn't prevent many other tragedies. In fact, oftentimes causes them. So do you think in an open and transparent society like America, where we see these things, do you think that a closed, protected government in China is going to actually regulate the health of that wet market. And yet, President Biden and the entire left, you cannot find a single article, a single speech demanding that they shut down those wet markets. And by the way, where's PETA? When we Orthodox Jews on, on the eve of Yom Kippur have a ritual process where we, we um, ritually slaughter um, chickens, 
and we do a process of, of forgiving our sins, and then we donate the chickens to charity, to poor people who don't have what to eat. Um, they come out and they bang their drums and they yell at us and they accuse us and they file lawsuits to, to shut it down because somehow it's cruel to have a ritual slaughter um, in the public domain, even though it's sanitary and it's regulated. Where is PETA when it comes to these wet markets that the scientists tell us is a absolute farm of zoonotic transfer from animal diseases to human diseases. We just experienced the worst pandemic in the history of recorded mankind that caused more deaths and more damage than anything that I can recall. And everyone is quiet. Why, why isn't the United States threatening China with trade sanctions? War. I mean, we're going to go through this again because they've opened up the wet markets. If it wasn't the Wuhan lab and it was the wet markets, then why are the wet markets or why aren't the scientists upset? They're the ones clamoring for us to wear face masks and to get vaccinations that haven't been proven to be safe. Where, where are they when it comes to the wet markets, which they say are dangerous? I could... I could see like one of the one of those scientists like listening to this podcast going, "Oh, we didn't think about that. <laughs> we this was our scapegoat, but we didn't think about what's the what's the consequences of our scapegoat argument, right? right? If these things, if this is really where it is, why are they open? Shut them down. Shut them down yesterday. Now I know you want to get into the legal, so I want to touch on a legal point. That yeah, and so on- right, and so nice. let me just segue to the next. And the, the first is two legal things that we want to kind of uh, address. I'm gonna kind of uh, turn it over to David on these. The first of one is the uh, latest on the professional attacks on uh, Giuliani, Sidney Powell, I guess, L. Lynn Wood. These are the Trump lawyers who face uh, potential sanctions over an, a Michigan election uh, lawsuit. Uh, and uh, sounds, you know, quite chilling. Can you imagine, I mean, we've seen the nonsense that the left brings into the courts of law. And, and not once I've ever seen something like this, such a witch hunt going after these. I mean, this is the chilling effect on something like this is just, uh, it's extraordinary. David. So the, the, the first and most pronounced case, of course, is that the New York courts, which regulate New York bar lawyers like myself, suspended Giuliani's law license in New York And of course, what oftentimes happens when a lawyer gets suspended or disbarred temporarily or permanently, other courts just say, me too. And so the Washington DC courts did the same thing and suspended him, but they suspended him without formal evidence and hearing. And it's considered a temporary suspension for the protection of the judicial system. Now, I'm going to be the first to say that Giuliani and the other Trump lawyers got well over their skis when it came to court filings about um, allegations of specific fraud. Um, They didn't have the evidence, ultimately. 
Um, they didn't do any serious due diligence on the evidence, at least not in the record. And um, it's they behaved in court and in the public domain. But what they said in the public domain, as far as I'm concerned, is First Amendment protected. Although they're being sanctioned, at least Giuliani is also being sanctioned for his public speech as a lawyer talking about legal processes. And while I would not engage in what they did, I'm, I and Robert both were both far more careful about our factual statements. The point that Rob's making is one that I would make. And that is the kind of hyperbolic, exaggerated statements that they made in filing complaints um, and in their allegations and we're talking about the early stage, a complaint. We see every day from lawyers on the other side and government lawyers and ACLU lawyers and leftist lawyers and attorneys general, like uh, what's the name of your Michigan attorney general? Yeah, Dana Nessel. Dana Nessel. We see perjury from their offices, literally. And what do the courts do? In the main, they ignore it because they know that unlike the continental system in Europe, we have an adversarial system and lawyers are professionally obligated, not entitled, obligated to zealously represent the interest of their client. And so if someone comes to them and says, I saw people throwing away ballots and I'm willing to sign an affidavit. And you write out the affidavit based upon what they say, they sign it, you submit it. And then the court says to you as they did in the most recent case where they ask, well, what did you do to check that information? Well, generally speaking, a lawyer isn't obligated to fact check an affiant. If someone comes to them and was in a position to see or know something, then you're not representing the truth of that matter. You're simply saying, I have a witness who's willing to testify as follows. Giuliani was suspended and will almost assuredly in New York be disbarred or some other permanent sanction like a long-term suspension. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely certain of that. You're talking about New York now. And as a result, DC will follow and the federal courts will follow. And the truth is Giuliani is well past his legal prime. He shouldn't be in a court anyway at this point. He's too busy pontificating on the, in the media and acting as a politician or a politician spokesperson. Um, he no longer has the internal controls of a litigator. A litigator should know um, when to put the brakes on and when not to simply espouse things that your client wants you to espouse and require facts. Um, we have the same with the uh, attorneys, uh, Sidney Powell and uh, L. Lynn Wood, the Georgia lawyer that got involved in litigation in Michigan and elsewhere, but in Michigan, they're in trouble because they filed a lawsuit claiming all kinds of specific acts of fraud. And while they had affidavits, um, some of their statements weren't 
backed up by affidavits and others were, and the relief they sought was kind of over the top. And they lost that case. And the judge, a liberal judge appointed, and I don't recall which president, but I guarantee you it was a liberal president, president um, is now going to get blood. So she conducted a six hour hearing on a sanction motion to sanction these lawyers to make them pay the cost of the state and the Democratic Party for defending the election results. And what will flow from that will be an a ethical bar proceeding to do the same thing, to suspend or disbar them. And the Democrats are out for blood. And why is this happening? When it happens every day, lawyers get out over their skis, they even lie and get away with it because judges accept that that's one of the pitfalls of, of um, uncareful lawyers who were too involved in the zealous advocacy part of their responsibility and not the professional integrity part of their uh, responsibilities because they have both. And at times, zealous advocacy can compete with professional integrity. You have to balance that every day. But when you have a six hour sanction hearing, you can bet your bottom dollar, this is all about the non-kinetic civil war. This is not about professional integrity. This is not about justice. This is not about the election process. This is about getting blood, a pound of flesh from the Trump lawyers so that guys like Rob and myself who litigate on these issues as we did. We challenged elections. Now we're not being uh, taken up because I'd like to think that we're a lot more careful in this regard, but they're trying to send a warning to attorneys like us, like the American Freedom Law Center. Don't fight us. Don't come into court and argue that elections have been, have been uh, uh, rigged. Don't come into court and argue about the COVID protocols and vaccines. Don't come in and argue against our ideological biases, because if you do, we're coming after your law license. I, I mean, the, I think the last part is totally correct, but I, I totally disagree. When you file, when you file a lawsuit, we're at the complaint stage. They didn't get to discovery, right? You can make, you are permitted to make allegations, and they just have to be good faith allegations. If you have anything that even sounds in the nature of an affidavit, that is good faith. You have, like for us, for example, where you kept saying, where's the evidence, where's the evidence, you know, that this election was, uh, you know, was stolen in any way. We, you know, we filed a petition to the uh, Michigan Su Supreme Court. We had 30 plus affidavits from different people observing different things. And, and what we were asking for is, is an independent audit of the election, right? And we ended up losing four to three Right. But the, the very idea, though, that you that the filing of a complaint getting dismissed at that stage without discovery and, and given the nature of what this what the you know, the allegations were, they didn't allege that, you know, Martians came down from out of space and caused this election to be overthrown. They had a basis for making those allegations. I think it's absolutely garbage what they were doing to, uh, against these lawyers. And it's all about the latter part. Because I've, I mean, from, from what they filed in the court and the things that I've seen, and even, you know, from the, uh, you know, the other evidence, testimony and so forth, there are serious concerns in, that, that need to be, that needed to be raised in the court of law. For them to be now punished for that, 
this is absolutely just a, just an attack. It's a chilling attack. And you and I, we've seen time and time again, uh, arguments made by government, evidence presented by the government that just has no business. And the court rules on it at the end of the day. You haven't even gotten to discovery. The other thing about the election litigation, which is so problematic, is you have this safe harbor provision. You have to have all the litigation done by December 8th. It was December 8th last year, a federal law state uh, safe harbor. So you have an election, what was the date, November 6th, November 7th, and you have everything done by December 8th. I mean, that's ridiculous. We filed our petition in the Michigan uh, Supreme Court. It was like 3 a.m. Thanksgiving morning to try to get that to try to get that to there. To say that this is sanctionable conduct and, and even comments that you made outside of court is sanctionable conduct compared to what, like, for example, our attorney general does uh, in, in courts all the time. I mean, that's just, I, I, I can tell you, this is just, this is more like the January 6th stuff all over again. They just want to punish anybody who dares to stand up to the machine. And, and the machine includes, in this case, it appears the, uh, you know, the whole judicial system and the bar system and everything else. And so this is, this is dangerous ground. I absolutely totally disagree with the procedures that they're that they're engaging against these, uh, these and lawyers. and I and I agree, and that's why I underscore, this is very much their war. It's the civil war, non-kinetic, but they're making certain that they control all of the levers of power, and it's not enough in their mind to control the judges. They won all those cases. The judges threw them out. They want to frighten even the lawyers who might stand up and defend the rights of anyone on the other side of the ideological divide. Let me one qualify. Not all the case, and, and I, some are still going on. Right. But like, for example, our Secretary of State Benson here in Michigan issued guidance in October saying that, you know, absentee ballots, the, you could presume that the signature is valid, which is contrary to what the law was. They filed the lawsuit in October. It didn't take, it, it took till I think it was March or April or sometime well after the election, the judge ruled, yeah, that guidance was unlawful. It was unlawful. And think how much that could have impacted the election. We had, I think, 3.3 million absentee ballots that were just shuttled through. And you remember, you saw the numbers. Trump was leading by a big margin. All of a sudden, absentee ballots and whoop, numbers flipped. Oh, th there's, there's nothing there, nothing to see here. Move along, just move along. Uh, and there was nothing illegal that went on. Oh yeah, there was. The court already said so. Benson's guidance on how you deal with those signatures to verify that those were true absentee ballots was illegal, and a court said so. Uh, so the idea that this that this was just you know a, a pristine election is absolute nonsense. We've got not a whole lot of time, but I do want to I want you to give uh, give our listeners a, a brief overview of Trump's newest lawsuits against Twitter, Facebook, and Google, because um, we actually. And it's funny, I, I heard someone, I think it was uh, Dershowitz was saying, this is the most important you know, First Amendment case in uh, decades. I was like, hmm, we filed that class action lawsuit uh, a month or so before Trump did. But anyways, we have our lawsuit against Twitter. David, just give us a brief update. We don't have a whole lot of time on the Trump's lawsuits in comparison with what, uh, what we filed. Yeah, and maybe we'll come back to when we have more time because the hour's up. But essentially, um, what Trump has done is he has sued in um, at least two lawsuits. We've been told there are three. We can only find two on Pacer. One against Twitter, one against Facebook, and apparently one against Google for YouTube. And the argument there is... In federal court in Florida, right? Right. All, all in federal court in Florida. Right. And the argument there, and they've also alleged class action as we have done. And that I think they barred from us. But um, in, in essence, what they're claiming 
is that, and remember, um, Trump was banned before Biden came into power. And so their argument is, remember Twitter, Facebook, and Google as private entities are allowed to censor and ban people. But the one argument is that under the um, Communication Decency Act, Section 230, because they're given immunity from any kind of lawsuit, um, uh, as long as they censor um, based upon their own rules, um, no one can sue them. And so one argument is, and we've used this argument, that that statute provides, changes the relationship between uh, the private entity and the individuals and does so because government has intervened in that relationship. And that is a form of state action. And Rob can get into that uh, more and better than I can. The other argument that they make, and this is the one that I'm interested in, is that Democratic members of Congress were constantly attacking social media and criticizing them and calling them as witnesses and threatening to pass legislation if they didn't censor Trump as president. So their argument is when the social media giants censored Trump, it was essentially doing the dirty work of the Democrats in Congress and therefore state action. And once it involves state action, even by a private party, that um, First Amendment is implicated. Now, our lawsuit is a little different, and we'll get into this at another podcast, because we've sued Twitter, and we're going to be suing Facebook shortly, and the Biden administration, because our censorship comes after Biden comes into power, and it's not just public statements and threats by a certain politician or a group of politicians. We have evidence in the form of public Associated Press reports that the Biden administration physically called in the executives from the main social media giants, Twitter and Facebook included, and told them they needed to protect the government's narrative on vaccinations. And anyone who goes against that narrative needs to be censored. They left that meeting and that's exactly what they did. Now that's classic joint action in the form of a conspiracy, meeting of the minds, cooperation, et cetera. Um, that's no different than a, a police officer who can't get a warrant to search my house, goes to my neighbor and says, gee, would I'd really like you to go search Mr. Ushami's home. I, I, I understand he gave you a, a key um, in case, you know, there's a fire or something to get in and take his dog out or something. I don't have a dog, but presumably. And the neighbor goes in on behalf of the police and searches my house. Um, that would be a violation of my First Amendment rights because the neighbor is acting essentially as a deputy. He's been empowered by the state to go in and, and do their work for them. So right. Fourth Amendment, just, just to be clear, that'd be a Fourth Amendment violation. But still yeah, Fourth Amendment, I'm sorry. Right. So, so that, that's the, um, the difference in the two lawsuits. Um, I think ours is stronger as a result of the state action argument, but we'll see how the CDA argument, the Section 230 argument, flushes out. Um, my guess is that's going to be a harder one, harder one to win. 
Yeah, I, I, I like that argument. Like I said, we put it in, in ours as well as an alternative theory of state action because there is case law that when you have a law that changes the legal relationship of the parties, um, that there's that there's the courts have found state action that's in that situation. And we we filed ours uh, lawsuit in federal court in Arizona because that's where our our plaintiff, um, a doctor, uh, resides, who is the one who's suing, who was censored by by Twitter. So, and there'll be more to follow on this, I'm sure, in, in other podcasts, but that uh, certainly is all the time we have today. Again, we look forward to our next discussion. We thank all of you for joining us. As you know, our, podca our podcasts, are, uh, I should say, our videocasts are posted on our Rumble and YouTube channels, and our podcasts are posted on Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the content, please follow us, and uh, please spread the word. Again, we thank you, and may God bless you, and may you continue to bless America. Amen.